second episode of our Construction Law Back to Basics NEC Contracts podcasts. This is a series of podcasts designed by Stevens and Bolton's construction engineering team to provide listeners with an overview of uh, the NEC suite of contracts, which is one of the standard forms used in the construction industry. I'm Gwilym Evans, a senior associate at Stevens and Bolton, and I'm joined today by Lauren Melnick, uh, my fellow associate. In the last episode, our colleagues Johnny Farrell and Tom O'Dell uh, took us through an introduction to the NEC suite of contracts, their origin, and the ethos behind how these contracts are meant to be used. Starting in this episode, we're going to look at some of the more defining characteristics of NEC, uh, starting with the management aspects, by which we mean the mechanisms within the NEC suite of contracts, which set out how a construction project is meant to be run. Great. Thanks, Gwilym. Now, due to management being such an important part of the NEC contract, it's also quite a large topic. So we've decided to today break this part down into two podcasts. This episode will focus on the communication obligations between parties to an NEC contract and how the contract allocates risk between parties. Then in our next episode, we will look at how the contracts deal with these risk events should they occur during the life of a project. So a reminder from the outset that it will be in our next episode that we focus on matters such as delay and compensation events. Thanks, Lauren. Good to point that out. So um, to start, management is an area where the NEC distinguishes itself from some of the other standard form uh, construction contracts commonly used in England and Wales. It has much more of a focus on providing project management tools, uh, an emphasis on cooperation, and setting out in far more detail how communication is to take place between the parties. Now, in an NEC contract, the employer will select a project manager, capital P, capital M, who has a central role in the administration and management of the contract. The project manager basically acts as a facilitator of the relationship between the client and the contractor, and they help ensure that the collaboration that's built into the contract actually takes place. Now, while most building contracts will have an equivalent to the project manager role, it's usually more restricted, sometimes as limited as just checking that the progress of the works is uh, performing as expected against the contractor's requests for payments. But in NEC, the project manager has a far more involved role, and there's almost no part of the NEC contract which doesn't involve involve the project manager performing some role. Um, The project manager, in addition to adopting an active and proactive approach to the administration, uh, also has to participate in near constant communication and dialogue between the contractor and the client to help identify potential problems uh, with with the the project at as early a stage as possible, and then take steps to avoid or minimize the impact of those events. This is slightly different, I would say, to the role of, say, a contract administrator in an unamended JCT contract, because in those contracts, the contract administrator has a far more passive role where they only really act if and when specific information is provided to them by the contractor. And even then, the unamended form of the JST contract will be relatively silent on how communications are to be conducted and the actions that will take place following receipt of the information. So um, as an example, perhaps, Lauren, you should take us through some of the specific duties the project manager has under NEC. Yes, of course. So it's the project manager's responsibility to undertake risk management. Now that's under clause 15, in NEC 4 and clause 16 in NEC 3. 
And they do this by producing and maintaining what's known as the early warning register. And that was known as the risk register in NEC3. Running early warning meetings, uh, they were known as the risk reduction meetings in NEC3 and subsequently issuing any necessary instructions to the contractor to change the scope of works. And also the project manager gives early warnings to the contractor of any matter that they are aware of, which may affect performance, cost or time to completion. That's clause 15.1 in NEC4 and clause 16.1 in NEC3. And they decide whether the contractor should have given early warning of a compensation event, clause 61.5, but this doesn't mean waiting until the contractor notifies the project manager of an event. And then just to uh, note here, sorry, Lauren, that there is a distinction between the project manager's role and that of the supervisor, capital S, under an NEC contract. The supervisor is another role that is appointed by the employer uh, within the contract data. And their role is principally to be in charge of checking that the works constructed are in accordance with the contract. So essentially a quality quality control slash quantity surveyor type role, which is uh, much narrower, more focused than that of a project manager who, as mentioned before, has multiple roles under the NEC contract, and one of which is the uh, early warning register. So Lauren, back to you. Tell us more of the early warning register. Yeah, thank you. So the NEC envisages that the client and the contractor will compile something called the register of risks, and this list is added to the contract data. These risks can be specific or general in nature, but the idea is that the register identifies what risks may affect a project, sets out how they will be managed, and identifies the time and cost associated with managing those risks. And while it's unlikely that a register can cover every eventuality. The idea is that the parties will have run a thought exercise or a type of risk workshop pre-contract to identify the risks that are most likely to take place during the life cycle of a project and agree how those situations would ideally be resolved. This register then becomes a management tool to assist with the early identification of problems to ensure that there, there is a process in place. And the rationale being that early intervention will help mitigate or even neutralize the negative impacts that the event would otherwise have had. Normally at tender stage, the client will identify matters that they think should be included in the early warning register. There is a specific section of the contract data for this, and the contractor can then add to this register in part two of the contract data. This way, both parties get to ensure that the risks that most concern them are not forgotten. And while creating a comprehensive early warning register could seem like being an administrative burden, it is intended to reduce the likelihood of expensive claims later on. Now, the NEC contract very much recognises that the contractor is not always the best placed party to resolve every risk event. And there's some, there might be some events that could be better dealt with by the employer. The NEC is therefore unlikely to be the first contract of choice for parties who want to place all or most of the risk in a project onto one party, usually the contractor, although certainly you could still do this with NEC. But what it is well suited for are complex projects where a simplistic approach to risk would just lead to an increased contract sum as the contractor tries to price all the risk that they are being asked to take on. A more nuanced risk register can instead allow for a more reasonable contract price as the parties can agree in advance who is responsible for what. The project manager then includes the agreed upon items in this initial early warning register and issues it to the contractor. 
in NEC 4, this must be issued within one week of the starting date, and that's clause 15.2. Gwilym, should we just have a quick look at how the early warning register is operated? Yes, thanks, Lauren. Uh, so the first thing to note is once you've got your early warning register, this is not a static document that doesn't change. Uh, you can add events, and in fact, you, you must continue to add events uh, as the project progresses. Now, as soon as either the project manager or the contractor becomes aware of a matter which could increase the total cost of the project or delay completion or the achievement of a key date. And just a quick note here that in NEC, there might be multiple key dates that identified in the contract data or just generally otherwise impair the performance of, of uh, the contractor, then that party is required to give the other what's called an early warning notice. Again, this is in clause 15. And the project manager must then add whatever has caused that uh, event to take place into the early warning register, assuming that it's not already uh, in there. Now, that matter is then discussed at the next early warning meeting in NEC4. The first such meeting is held within two weeks of the start of the works on the basis that even if there aren't any uh, early warnings at that time, the idea is to get into the habit of having those uh, meetings on a regular basis. And um, while under the NEC3, it was on the idea that the um, meetings would take place on request under NEC 4, it actually uh, asks that the parties set out in the contract data how frequently these meetings are meant to take place. So a much more rigorous process than as before. And the purpose of the early warning meeting is to get the attendees to discuss the noted risks and identify how the problems can be avoided or at least their impact reduced. It gives the parties an opportunity to discuss and resolve the problems at an early stage and including determining what actions should be taken and who in particular is meant to take it. The meeting should also look at whether any of the risks on the register have in fact avoided, you know, whether the the danger period in which the event could have taken place has passed, and therefore it can be removed from the risk register. The project manager or the contractor may, uh, this is subject to agreement with the other side, instruct others to attend the early warning meeting. And again, in NEC 4, there is a recognition that often parties such as the subcontractor might need to attend these meetings if they can be of use, although it doesn't quite go so far as to mandate that they must attend. And after the meeting, the project manager will revise the early warning register and reissue it to the contractor. Uh, under the unamended NEC 4, this is required to be done within one week of the meeting. And uh, if a decision is made at the early warning meeting to also change the scope of the works as a response to the event, then that change must also be instructed to the contractor by the project manager, again, clause 15, uh, at the same time as it issues the early revised, sorry, the revised early warning register. The change may then constitute a compensation event under clause 60.1. Yes, and compensation events are a really key part of the NEC, but as we mentioned at the beginning, these won't be covered in this episode and, and they'll be looked at in the next episode. Um, please keep in mind then that NEC requires all parties to be involved in the management of the contract and to keep communications open during the works. 
Whilst it's always important to read a contract before starting work, because of the difference between the NEC and many other standard form construction contracts, it's even more imperative than usual that you read all of the contract terms and that you're aware of all the requirements and procedures used by the NEC in order to manage the contract. And that's just so that you can, you're able to manage the risk. It's been our experience that parties do find the communication obligations in NEC difficult at first, and then disputes can arise when one or both parties fail to engage in the process set out in the contract and or communicating as the project progresses. But this is often because insufficient time was taken to read and understand the obligations up front. Yes, and I think another important aspect of the NEC which catches people out is the emphasis on collaboration. So unlike contracts, uh, again using the JCT as an example, um, the NEC contract comes with an obligation on the parties to act in quote, spirit of mutual trust and co cooperation, close quote, right from the outset. Uh, these types of obligations um, we often refer to uh, as lawyers as good faith clauses. Now, you may think that all contracts already have the concept of good faith within them, or if they don't, then maybe they should. But that historically has not been a popular approach for contracts in England and Wales. And the default position for most contracts, not all, is that they don't contain obligations of good faith unless specifically and expressly included. And if you will forgive the uh, oversimplification in contract law, you do not owe the other party anything above and beyond what you have uh, clearly set out in the terms of the contract. So by this logic, unless your contract states otherwise, you do not have to do anything to help the other party if the contract doesn't require this of you. So for example, if you know the other party is about to make a mistake under the contract terms that will cost them money, but the contract does not require you that you warn them, then the starting position will be that you can allow them to make that mistake, even if you potentially profit from it. However, once you start introducing the concept that you must always be acting in both trust and cooperation, you begin to, as we lawyers say, muddy the waters as to the extent of your obligation. Um, so it's something to be considered as to whether or not you want the duty of good faith to be in your contract, because it does have ramifications. And uh, due to that potential significance of the good faith obligation, it's probably why in the most recent iteration of the NEC contract, the clause where this obligation was contained has actually been split into two parts, where with the wording to act in good faith being in a subclause separate to the wording to just act in accordance with the contract terms, which is um, the uh, obligation the parties are more familiar with. And the assumption that I've drawn is that this is because the clause was so frequently amended that the authors of the NEC suite decided to split the clause in two to make it easier for the draftsman to cross through the good faith element if that wasn't desired. But again, the default position is if unamended, the NEC 4 will still have the obligation to act with mutual trust and cooperation built into the very terms. Yeah, and I think also it's worth noting there that, that there is also no express provision in the NEC contracts which require the project manager to be impartial and fair in exercising its skill and discretion to, to make the decisions that are required of it. However, the body of case law on other construction contracts strongly suggests that such an obligation would be implied. So in summary, there are specific contractual timescales attached to the performance of many of the project manager's duties and responsibility, and the project manager needs to be really familiar with these. 
Whilst it's the project manager's role to facilitate the contract and keep communications open, the project manager itself is not a party to the contract. So we suggest that it's equally important for the contractor to be familiar with the various procedures and time scales in the contract that manage risk, control the budget and minimise the potential for disputes and therefore erosion of profits. The requirement to participate and follow the various procedures and therefore the times and costs involved also need to be factored into any quotes and price provided by the contractor and included in the contract sum. Whilst it's always important to read a contract before starting work, because of the difference between NEC and other standard form construction contracts, we'd say it's even more imperative than usual that you're aware of the requirements and procedures used by the NEC in order to be able to manage your own risk, because there is scope to be caught out by the default outcomes which a judge or adjudicator is just not going to overturn. And examples of those types of situations will be covered in the next couple of episodes. So I think that's it. Thank you very much for tuning in today and listening to this podcast, which again is the second of our Back to Basics NEC contract series. If you have any questions or would like any further information on what we've discussed today or during the rest of any of our other NEC contract podcasts, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself, with Lauren, or with any of your usual Stephen and Bolton's contacts. And I remind you that you'll find more information plus all our other episodes on the construction page at the Stevens and Bolton websites. And that the next episode will build on today's topic by explaining compensation events which i would say are one of if not the most misunderstood yet vital features of nec contracts thank you very much thanks